Hi, everybody. This is Chris Coffey from West 40, and you're listening to Shift Everything, the podcast that challenges the status quo in education. Join us as we explore what's happening in the classroom and the changes that are making the impossible possible. Welcome to this edition of Shift Everything. I'm Dr. Michael Pop, Assistant Executive Director at West 40 Intermediate Service Center in Hillside. Today I'm joined by Dr. Julie Morris. She's a member of our professional learning team at West 40, a retired superintendent of schools. Julie serves schools and districts across our region, provides executive coaching to local education leaders, and has a passion for today's topic, which focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome, Julie. And I know I've only scratched the surface of your resume, so to get us started, if you could talk about your professional and personal background, and ultimately, why do you regularly engage in conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how does race play an important role in our dialogue about serving the educational needs of all students? Well, thank you for having me first. I'm very excited to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Um, I think this topic, uh, narrowing it down to the this topic in gen- or specifically takes me almost back to when I was a child. I mean, thinking back when we're working in, in this type of equity and, and understanding who I am as a person and where, my, where, I, where I fall in that spectrum, um, it takes me back to even as a child, I had this, I always had questions, I always had wonderings. I grew up, I'm a white female, I grew up in central Wisconsin, had very little to no diversity racially or in many other ways and so uh, so I always had questions, though. I always wondered, watching TV, of what is this dialogue people or what is this thing going on between black and white people? Um, always worried and concerned about those who were being marginalized, even down to the playground, where the child who always gets picked last or the child who doesn't get to go first whenever we play jump rope or those kinds of things. So it was really always that whole people who are marginalized goes back to my childhood where I had lots of questions. So when I became um, professionally, when I became a teacher, um, I was a a high school teacher and I started in the late 80s as a teacher. I, I just, as you said, I'm a retired superintendent. And so I retired a year ago, technically, from education, from being in the schools. And so that was always from the very start um, of teaching. I came down to Illinois, started in a school further west of of here, and really that's where I began to really see in person the disparities and the the concerns and the just the wonderings I continued to have about race and um, how that was playing out in our schools. It concerned me, though I didn't know, I didn't have the tools, I didn't really understand at that point what was what was happening. So as I continued, um, I became an administrator pretty early in my career, and so again started to see through discipline, through um, through coursework, you know, through curriculum, all the different aspects of race and gender and all of the isms that you see and that you hear about playing out in our schools because, of course, we're, we're a reflection of our society. And so it just, as I became older and I became a superintendent, I was in a district where I was, I was the assistant superintendent in that same district that I then later became the, the superintendent. And we had some very major concerns going on um, between a group of parents um, 
who were very concerned about their black and brown children and the education that they were receiving and the treatment that they were receiving. And so we ended up, we did end up, when I became the superintendent shortly after that, we ended up in a federal mediation, received a phone call from a federal mediator from the United States Department of Justice who said, are you willing to engage in conversation and work through a mediation process? Um, this this family or this this group would like to do that. It was mainly um, children, parents of children who are black and brown, but we also they also then picked up students with IEPs who were feeling very marginalized and very um, very discriminated against. I guess is is as well. And so I said, you know what? Absolutely, we need somebody to help us have this conversation because we're not we're not sure where to start, and it's been going on for a long time. And so we engaged in that, and that's where I made the promise, um, professionally, obviously, as well as personally, that that was not just a professional, for me professional, it's been something that's been part of, part of me since I was a child, wondering, um, worried, just trying to figure it all out. So we started our work in my former district, and 15 years later, when I retired, um, we were able to raise that um, graduation rate while also, and and raising um, scores and things like that also while closing that achievement gap. And traditionally that's something that's very difficult to do, especially overnight. So it took us a long time and that's really why I'm very um, involved in this. It, Julie, that the, the last piece of what you said there really is uh, the definition to me of what equity in education is. It's about raise achievement of all students mm-hmm. while you eliminate the gaps between the highest and lowest performing students. To me, school has always been about every single child. Uh, we found, though, uh, that um, I think across the country that we weren't, all of our actions didn't really focus on every child. Right. But when we talk about equity, it's to make sure that everybody has that same opportunity to meet standards. Mm -hmm. So if that's what equity is about, why have there been all these conversations about equity across our country that are becoming like a flashpoint for uh, disagreement Mm -hmm. and and that that it's something wrong? What do you see going on out there in our country? Well, I think that's a very, very loaded question, but I think uh, down to its core, we're forgetting that first part of your statement that while we're also addressing all children, we also need to, by doing that, we can also bring students along who have historically been marginalized, who've been discriminated against, whatever words you want to use in there to um, explain that. That's the biggest part of it. We're so worried about having something taken away from our small part of the puzzle that we're not understanding that and we're not agreeing with the fact that we can raise everybody while also then closing those gaps. And we proved that in one way in my, in my former place. Yep. And, and so what I'm, I'm going to jump to that real quickly. And then I want to come back to talk about conversations that we see on the news every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but talk about your own district and what are those things you did uh, to take that introspective look and say, hey, we can, we can do some things differently here mm-hmm. uh, so that we are focused on every child. Right. Well, I think that one of the things that we did early on before we even started the conversation about race was really getting on board about the fact that 
every child, you know, we are here for every individual child. And when you're working in a large school or when you're working in a classroom that has 25, 30 children in them, that at first it's like, what do you mean every individual child? We have to worry about the group. Um, and so people at first, I think they thought I was a little nuts, to be honest with you. But then as time went by, you start when you start to have that as your mindset, the child's in the center, every individual child um, needs to have high expectations, needs to be pushed toward those high expectations and so forth. You start to then look at every individual child differently as opposed to the full group. And so from there, we build, you know, we built and we started taking apart every part of our system along the way. I think No Child Left Behind when we were, you know, I used that as kind of a, of a place to say, hey, we have to do this. Legally, we have to look at our, our data disaggregated. And that's really, um, you know, taking, taking that approach. We started to look at our data. We started to look at everything differently, our policies. Um, understanding how to feel, how do children feel safe? You know, I always brought it back to the good old Maslow's hierarchy. You know, we're looking at every every level of that hierarchy, and we're getting stuck in certain places with certain students. And so, how do we keep moving to that self-actualization so that someday each of our students can do that? Many many years ago, when you and I were both uh, young. Uh, educators, <laughs> the National Association of Secondary Schools principal, secondary school principals made a recommendation that we should basically have an IEP for every child. Absolutely. We should have this individual plan. Uh, they were way ahead of the way, way ahead of the curve there. That um, really, what they were saying was, let's meet kids where they are. Let's figure out what they need and let's give it to them. And th and that's really the basis for this for what equity in education can be. Now, we know, though, that all schools and all school districts aren't created equally. And, you know, we see in our very region here that uh, when we started uh, evidence-based funding, we had the least funded school district in the state. And in the same region here, we had districts that were funded at well over 100%. Uh, of adequacy. And so we're starting at uh, a deficit as we go into this new funding model. And the, while the state has made great strides with funding it, uh, we still see those disparities. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, um, there's some history behind this. Mm -hmm. uh, those districts didn't uh, become poor right. uh, by themselves. Right. They, didn't, they didn't create that. Can you give us a little background about how that came to be? Sure. Well, our schools, our schools are a reflection of our society, and I say that over and over. And we, depending on the zip code, as you said, a child may have a different education based on funding, based on um, their their living, based on everything that has to do with with their with their life. And so we talked, and we've been talking as a as an organization here a little bit about that whole process of redlining, about where um, where historically our black and black and brown communities did not have the privileges, did not have the funding, did not have the laws um, on their side to be able to build their communities for longevity purposes. And so um, to thrive and to continue to build, to build wealth, to build generational wealth, to build strong schools um, because of the way that our society and our systems were set up against them. 
And, and so the, the bottom line, in some neighborhoods, people could get mortgages. Absolutely. And they were government-backed mortgages. Mm-hmm. In other areas, people could not get a government-backed mortgage. Correct. And you you noted then, they, they, they weren't given the tools to, to build generational wealth. There's a great board member in one of our local districts in, in Oak Park River Forest. And Ralph Martiri is... Uh, he heads the Center for Tax and Accountability in Illinois. And and Ralph uses the example of Oak Park River Forest and the funding there versus a neighboring district in Maywood. Uh, two districts we serve and we have programs in those districts. But he points out that this disparity, this historical issue uh, has caused that disparity in resources right now. Uh, and so we know there's these opportunity gaps that were created long time ago. But there are, are opportunity gaps that districts create. And you started talking about that a little while ago. What, what were some things that you saw in your own districts? Because I know I saw them in mine, where the, the educators created, uh, they created some walls for some kids or some barriers so they couldn't access the best. What was out there and what did you do to eliminate those barriers? So one of the striking processes within a school or systems within a school district is like an honors program, for example. That is the traditional white space and it's very focused on um, not to say that any of the children in that program are don't deserve to be there, but it's, it's very much a white space if you look at all the data, if you look at historically, we keep certain students out. So one of the things that we did was really looking into that at our high school specifically, we brought in, we, we worked with Equal Opportunity Schools to really target what is it about our system that our students of color, our black and brown students, our students from low socioeconomic backgrounds, that they're not accessing these programs. Um, it's not the kids who aren't smart enough. You know, that is, we blame it on the kids and that's never the case. It's not them, it's the systems we have built. And so we started to break that down. We started to look at the high school, we want kids in AP classes, but then historically have our students in the elementary schools been been pushed the way that they need to, been had high expectations that they needed to, that they've been given access to higher order um, thinking and learning as well. Um, so all the way up to high school, now we're looking at prerequisites. So we start to really analyze what's a prerequisite and why do we need a certain grade or what is it that we need in order for a student to be successful other than they really want to do well. And, and a teacher or somebody sees in them that they um, can do this work. And so um, we have all these arbitrary things in our systems that we use to keep kids out. Um, same thing with like a fine arts program. Well, our, our students who were had a lot of access to lessons, to being able to um, take dance, tumbling, all these different music lessons, well, they were they were because they were able to have this background. It wasn't necessarily that they were gifted, but they had a lot of background knowledge because they were able to be in some of those programs. So we had to really start looking at what is what does a fine arts student look like, sound like, what skills do they need in order to be gifted in those areas? So we were very much looking at gifted as opposed to the student who is accelerating in a particular area due to having access to the curriculum and and other things. And so those are just a couple examples of how we did that. You described uh, the the term predictability. Mm -hmm. 
that you and I could take a walk. Uh, when I was a high school principal, we could walk up to the AP physics classroom and we could guess who would be in that room. Uh, and the, the whole focus on if we have high expectations of all kids and we act on those expectations, we could get rid of that predictability. Right. And, and I think the, the same applies for those lowest level classes we have or classes that uh, are for kids that have been identified for a behavior issue or an emotional issue. Sometimes there's predictability in the wrong direction there uh, that we're seeing more of our black and brown students there. Were you able in those 15 years to uh, eliminate a little bit of that predictability when we would walk around your school district? I think we have. Um, we, uh, when we, like for the honors and the AP classes, that environment has shifted. Um, where we now have have it represented more representative of what our population is. So if we have five percent of our population as being black in our school, well, five percent of our AP and honors courses should technically or more should be should be represented in there. Same thing with our students from low income background. That should be representative in those classes as well. And so we really started to see differences. Our elementary um, program for fine arts, we started to see students and looking at how we identified, we started to then see different students in the program other than the students from a couple of schools that would predominantly have the students with, with that background knowledge coming in. So those were a couple of, of ways that we would start to see that, yes, very much so. Thank you. And uh, recently you were a part of a, a, a small team that put on a presentation to some local leaders about the equity journey continuum. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a new uh, item on the state report card that school districts, that we publish for school districts across the state. Can you talk a little bit about that equity journey continuum in relation to everything else you're telling us about today? Right, right. Well, I think I applaud the state for taking that step especially like you said earlier in a time where um, everything when you you mention equity you mention race you mention gender you mention it becomes it just becomes a hot button so I applaud the state for continuing to really focus on that um, so the equity journey continuum is really taking a look at those things looking at data we already have looking at the way that we set up our systems in our schools um, again, not fixing the kids. Equity is important, and we need to provide that, and we need to bring students up or where they need to be with the baseline information. We also need to look at our system and make the changes within our system to provide access from the very start. And so that's, I see, part of the, the goal of the equity journey continuum to say, where are you? Where are you in your school district on that journey? Because it is a journey. And I, and I learned early in our journey that it, it cannot be about judgment. It cannot be about hate. Um, we're all in a place. We all have the background that we that we lived with, that we grew up with, that may or may not may or may not really um, um, bring us to a level of consciousness about these things. So it's really about helping people understand where they're at from a lens of respect, 
love even. Um, that's one of the trainers that I had around um, race and, and equity um, along the way, really focused on that aspect of it. To really meet people, we want to meet our students where they're at and bring them forward, having high expectations of, about what they need. Well, we need to do that with our adults and our system as well, um, and meeting people where they are and not being angry that they're not where we want them to be. Um, but to say, okay, how do we move forward? We're going to continue moving forward. We're going to stay in that zone, that productive zone of disequilibrium where we just have to fight, you know, we have to fight through it ourselves to stay engaged and to keep working. You and I are on the same page again. So many times we are as far as uh, uh, I went and I thanked the, the board and, and I thanked uh, the, the state superintendent for including this item on the, st on the report card. We know, and you mentioned No Child Left Behind, that was a time that really caused all of us to engage in conversations about race. You know, we, you, you talked about black and brown students, uh, students from low income, students who, who have IEPs. And so we started to talk about what the state called subgroups at that point. And it seems like the conversation trailed off a little bit the last few years. And here we are uh, resurrecting the conversation and making sure it stays alive. Do you think that... Uh, some school districts uh, that that this will recharge that conversation for them that you know they had it it was going strong in during NCLB and now this equity journey continuum score is going to cause them to focus a little more on those subgroups of kids I hope so um, because we're not making the progress that we need to as an educational system in Illinois. I can speak specifically for Illinois because that's kind of my local, personal, local, and immediate, having been here for over 36 years. We've made pockets of, of growth, and I hope that this equity journey continuum helps us to remind us and to, and to push us back into that direction. I know that, and from a different lens, because I think when it initially came out in No Child Left Behind, I think it was perceived and even to, even to a certain degree, it was about judging. You're not doing this, you need to do that. And I think that with the equity journey continuum, I'm hoping it can be more of, okay, this is where we're at. We know that this is that that we can predict what our black and brown students, our students from low income families, we can predict what their outcomes are going to be. We need to change that prediction to be a positive one. And so, how do we do that with our students? How do we do that with our staff? And how do we recreate our systems? Coming out of COVID, I was hopeful that we we can we're in a different era now. So how can we change our systems in order to be the right thing for each and every one of our students? So that's my hope. I have hope. It's a tough time in, in, in education. It's a tough time in the society and in the world. There's a lot of a lot of angst, a lot of anger, a lot of hate out there around this topic specifically. Um, and I'm hopeful. I'm always hopeful because because my children um, and personally, this is more than more than uh, professional. My children are black and brown. My husband's black. I've seen personally, not experienced it because I'm a white female. I've seen personally what what the systems can do to against um, uh, against our students who are black and brown. But I also believe that we can make changes and continue so that. Our, our children will have a different, a different world to live in. So in the past, uh, you mentioned 
uh, we would put out scores. We would, you know, show No Child Left Behind and, and the status of each school, and and it would be used in a judgmental way. There there were lots of sticks, not a lot of not a lot of carrots being used right. back then. And so, how do we how do we avoid that with this Equity Journey Continuum score? How do you think uh, communities are going to respond to that score, and how should superintendents and principals and teachers respond to that? Right. Well, I think that all of the the training is different now too, and and the resources that we have around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion are starting to shift away from the blame game to, to okay, this is our reality. How do we move forward, and how do we pull it together? Um, and so I I know that people are going to look at it and say, well, you know, it, they're going to see a score because it is a range. There's there's a range of three different sections, or a range from zero to four. And so there is a range. People are going to see that to a certain degree. But I think that as we, um, as we start to focus in on the three areas that they talk about, that we just, we just need to stay strong that, yes, this is about our systems, this is about our students, and what is best for them. And when you start to really focus on that, it's hard to, it's hard to disagree. I'm going to take us in a different direction right now. You mentioned a little while ago that you know, there's, there's lots of anxiety uh, all over the place and you know locally but across our country mm-hmm. and one of the one of the terms that gets kicked around quite a bit that causes some anxiety is critical race theory mm-hmm. and um, I don't think we can have this dialogue without talk you know talk equity without talking about CRT mm-hmm. can you give just a real brief synopsis of what critical race theory is and what it is not critical race theory number one is not taught in our public education schools. Um, It's not taught in our classrooms. Critical race theory is really a framework um, that has been out there for a long time around um, how you you see race in our systems um, focused on, it's taught in higher education, it's taught around laws, it's really focused on what, how has this world, how has this this country been set up so that race is, plays a, a role in privilege, it pr- plays a role in wealth, and it, and it really plays a role in um, haves and have not. Who gets, who doesn't, who's, who's got the power, who doesn't. And so it's really a process of, of trying to unravel that from the very beginning of our country's constitution and so forth. So it's really focused on, in a nutshell, it's focused on that, trying to figure it out. It's a framework for that. And, and so your mention of redlining earlier, that's a part of this conversation about critical race theory. And and I was a high school teacher for a while, a high school administrator for many years, and uh, I'm with you. I don't recall us teaching critical race theory uh, as you defined it in our schools. Uh, but uh, with that said, I don't think there's anything wrong with teaching history, no, you know, with, with, with teaching, hey, here's, here's where we were, here's what society was, here's decisions that were made, mm-hmm. looking at them now and saying those were bad decisions, right. uh, the, the, you know, they, that, that there was this concerted effort to define certain neighborhoods as red line neighborhoods and and we knew what was going to happen you know the collective we there we knew what would happen to those neighborhoods and yet we did it we should study that to say we can't do that again Uh, and to understand why we are where we are right now and work towards work towards fixing things work towards making things better for the next generation when 
the legislature in Illinois was, was debating uh, what ultimately became evidence-based funding. Back when our legislature was working on uh, what ultimately became evidence-based funding, mm -hmm. uh, people like Leader Will Davis in the House, he said that uh, education funding is the civil rights issue of our day. And he was, he was in, in, in Illinois, and he was very correct in that. And when we looked around the state, we could see that these, these communities that had uh, their wealth artificially deflated and never having the ability to build wealth, we saw an education system uh, funded on property value. Those schools were not as well-funded as other schools. And so we know, though, that the state can't fix this all in, you know, in one year. We know we're, we're still a number of billions of dollars away from uh, being able to provide adequate funding to every single student in the state. What should we be doing in the meantime? Uh, we know that funding is not going to be there immediately. A lot of us advocate for that money to happen sooner than later. But what can we be doing in our districts right now to make sure we're providing the best we can for every student? There's so much we can we can be doing because, as you know, money is important. Um, it's not going to fix it all. And it always comes back to our belief system, our belief system in our school, my personal belief system, and how that has an impact because what I believe really drives the decisions that I make and that's going to yield the results. So as we're looking at our, our children, all of our children, um, we, we really need to break down those systems that, that we know are causing the predictable outcomes. We need to look at every facet. We can start doing that. We can look at our honors programs. We can look at our discipline system. We, we know that there's been a lot about that over the last several years about how we discipline our students. What are our students getting disciplined for? Um, are our students, our black and brown students, being disciplined for more subjective things um, as opposed to our students who, of our white students who are being disciplined for very tangible, very evidence-based things. So it's, it's all the way down to those types of of processes and systems that we can really take a look at. Our curriculum, what are we teaching? What is our history teaching us? You said earlier, history is the key to making sure we don't make the same mistakes over again. What are we teaching in our, in our history? Is our, our students seeing themselves in our history? In our classes, you know, it's it's as simple as that to putting up posters, but that's only the, you know, very, very one step all the way to really digging into the curriculum that we're teaching and the background, the cultures that we're, that we're including. Do our children, how do we make our children see themselves in the work that we're doing? And then that'll take us a, a big step forward because then it'll make sense to them. It'll, they'll want to be engaged because they're part of it. They're not on the outside looking in. And uh, as we get to wrapping up here, you mentioned uh, you had some people along the way that helped you uh, uh, get philosophically grounded in this conversation. Can you name any of those folks, any people that, that we should go and, and be studying and learning from also? 
Well, there's a gentleman who I referred to earlier. His name is Cortland Butts. He was one of our, we, we worked with um, Pacific Education Group on Courageous Conversation and learned those protocols for several years. He, he used to work for them and has now since gone into the world. And his focus is really around that, that um, breaking down the systems of race and racism and doing it in, from my perspective, working with him, doing it in a way um, that honors the spirit and the, um, the spirit of everybody who comes to the table as opposed to really focusing on what, what they don't have and what they need to do. Um, so he's one who I'm really, really like and like to work with and respect um, the work that he's done. Great, thank you. And you mentioned Pacific Education Group, and that was led by Glenn Singleton. Singleton. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I had the pleasure of, of working with Glenn for quite a while, uh, and he taught us to take that look at all those systems that you're talking about. We get these achievement gaps because of opportunity gaps, mm -hmm. and when we start to eliminate those, we can see real change happening in our schools. Well, Julie, I, I thank you for sharing your story and your insights with us. Thanks for all the good work you do to continue to help people focus on the real meaning of equity in education, uh, for all your work to raise achievement of all kids and eliminate those gaps between the highest and lowest performers. Uh, and we look forward to continuing this conversation at some point with Excellent. you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank, I, you. thank you very much for having me. This is a great conversation to have, and I enjoy having it with you, Mike. Thanks for listening to Shift Everything. We want to hear your thoughts and bold ideas and share your educational accomplishments. To join the conversation, email us at shifteverything at west40.org.